There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. I don't know where you are, in the car, in the gym, in the bath, running a small country. I know where I am. I'm in Spain. And this is David Moyes, The Big Interview, part two. And if you're frustrated that it's in two parts or if you've any other little complaint, I have to say it's down to most of you. Because when you enjoyed the first four podcasts with Gary Neville, Jimmy Carragher, Gordon Strachan and Kevin Bridges, many, many of you, in fact, the majority said, could have listened to more of that, make them longer, please. So here you go. What you already know, if you've listened to part one, is that we saved the way he talked about an extraordinary time in his life, a successful time in his career at Everton, the strong character, the likable man, toffee mad, Bill Kenwright, letting Gaza go, but not letting him go to Burnley. Not at the right time, anyway. Coming nose-to-nose with Duncan Ferguson and then making friends. And we recorded this just ahead of Big Duncan's testimonial at Everton against Villarreal. About United, about a phrase that David uses, the poison you have to face in your life as a manager in football. Then finalising on a subject we've touched on in all the podcasts, the current Barcelona style of football and a man that each of my guests has been drawn to and drawn to talking about Andres Iniesta. Look short and simple, over to David. I hope you enjoy it. I think that a lot of your work at Everton is underappreciated, and I'll explain why. I was still reporting in England before you took over, and I remember, you know, Walker and Kendall, and then Walter making a difference, mm-hmm. appreciably making a difference, mm-hmm. but the resources were too small. He was having to sell players. And when you took over, they were in trouble on the pitch. They were in trouble again towards the bottom of the league. But they were also a club that you know, didn't own all the resources. The training ground was going to need to be sold. Bill Kenwright was in or around. Money was always an issue. And if Everton had been relegated, there was a threat of, of what's you know, subsequently happened to... Wolverhampton and Birmingham and Leeds and, and, and the like and alright I think maybe the first couple of seasons might have been uh, bumpier than you wanted mm-hmm. but if you look back at your period at Everton I think that you can say that you've helped secure that club's if not their existence their ability to reap the big money in the Premier League that's a hell of a mm-hmm. thing you've left them well the big thing was to be given the opportunity and the time to get the time to turn a big club around is something which you need I think it was my second year, we lost 5 nothing to Manchester City in the last game of the season. And I'm sure Bill Kenwright jumped back in the train, back down to London, must have been thinking, is this the right man or not? 
but you know, he was big enough to say yes. You know, when maybe there were people doubting it, or maybe people who didn't understand football talking about it, he was big enough to stand up and say no. So you're right. At Everton, we started one good year, one bad year, one good year. But I took over from Walter, who had had a busy time clearing out. There was a big period, but also. When I came to Everton, I wanted to build a young team. I wanted to get young players. I wanted to get boys who I thought could go the journey with me. Because mm-hmm. I had only thought, I'm in here for the long haul. I'm here in here to build a club, rebuild. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people nowadays want instant success. Yeah. Very difficult unless you've got big money. Well, we didn't have big money at Everton. Remember Bill Kenwright when we were doing the contract? Bill said to me, David, I'll only ever be able to give you five million a year. I says, fine, Bill, no problem. The only thing I ask, Bill, is you allow me to prepare my players any way I want. I want to take them to a five-star hotel, I want to take them away, do anything I want with my players, and that you don't sell any of my best players. He says, no problem, David, deal. Me and Bill had that relationship, I trusted him. And if you don't have the trust with the people who, who are at the top, then it becomes very difficult. Bill trusted me because you look what the, the people he allowed me to go and buy. He allowed me you know, to go and bring in Tim Cahill, from Millwall. We were looking around the people like Andy Johnson in the early years, you know. He allowed me to buy Richard Wright at that time. So we had a lot of good signs, but not all of them. Not all of them were perfect. But it took me time to build a club, build a team, and change around the age of the squad and what we had at the club to try and give it a platform. I think by the end, of course we sold players. Of course we spent more than five million a year sometimes. That was the way it went. That was the job that was required. Everton couldn't have been turned around in a year. It was impossible. And yeah, I think the work we've done there, to be a manager of Premier League Club for 11 years, the people who I can think of are Brian Clough, I think he was 14 years, Sir Bobby Robson, obviously Sir Alex, Arsene Wenger. So probably the people who had the most success at any of the clubs were given a length of period in their jobs. And the yield for that was, I think you became one of the fourth person to win 150 Premier League games behind Sir Alex, mm-hmm. Wenger, one other person, and you were a forward. It's an extraordinary thing. Can I ask about Bill a little bit, please? Mm-hmm. I know he was a passionate fan, and that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Maybe that explains yeah. something about why he gave you faith. But equally, as mm-hmm. a passionate fan, if he worried about how the team was going, he could easily have said thank you and goodbye. Yeah. Was his theatrical background, had he taken risks before in investing in productions? And did that affect what kind of boss you had? Or I think because of that, he was good with young people. Mm-hmm. You know, he gave young people opportunities. He was he'd be bringing in young dancers or young singers or actors and probably people who were desperate to have a career. So I think in a way Bill saw that. And he also must be somebody, Bill, who recognises talent because you, you wouldn't be so successful if you didn't. Good point, I understand. And that. I actually think that, you know, I look at the owners that are, are in football now. I used it for the first time the other day. Every manager now has to take a level of poison my level at Everton was great with the chairman I had. He got on with it, wished me well. And I speak a lot with a lot of the young coaches, you know, and I used to always say, you know, try not to get your chairman too high when you win and try not get them too low when you lose. Sort of tell them, look. And to be fair, Bill was really good that way. Incredibly supportive. If we lost, incredibly supportive. If we won, ecstatic in his own way probably the minute he put down the phone to me he was jumping up and down in the car <laughs> because he was a massive Everton supporter yeah, I don't mind I prefer people like that in life yeah. not just in football 
maybe just a little trot. You've got Van Basten's jersey. You're not Cruyff out of Europe. You've taught David Beckham how to practice harder on his skills. You've been anointed by Sir Alex Ferguson. So let's go at a trot through some of the characters because Gaza. Am I right in thinking you yeah. had to say, Paul, thanks, mm-hmm. goodbye? I did. What was the Gaza experience like for you? Well, I've got to say, since then, I'll tell you the experience, but I mean, Graz is great. He's, he's, he's an extraordinary he, good man, he, isn't he? You know, he's done a lot of good things. Gaza, when I came in, was due to go to Burnley. Mm-hmm. Preston North End were due to play Burnley in the next game. So I get the job at Everton. The next game's against Burnley, and it was really important for us. And I'm saying, I can't sell Gaza to Burnley, who's going to play against Preston. So Gaza at that time, you know, was fine, you know, he wanted to go. Stan Tennant was the manager of Burnley at the time. And I'm trying to put Stan off because they were playing Preston in the... I think it was actually in the Sunday of the game. And uh, I was trying to put him off because I, could, I couldn't let Gaza go to Burnley against my old team on the, on the first game. It's kind of guaranteed that he'll clip up with a couple of goals and a free kick. So yeah. somehow I think I was able to smudge it and say that, no, I put the Gaza deal off. But look, Gaza was great and he, he knew his sort of time. And he wanted to go as well, Gaza. Mm-hmm. He knew it was time for him to go. Rooney. The beginnings of Rooney. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's become quite a special guy. I think he's misunderstood and misrepresented. But what was it like seeing that kind of Tyro, that kind of boy man? Is that fair to say that yeah. at 16, it's it hard to say, is this already a man or not? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see players who seem to you, he's ready now, mm-hmm. and then they don't kick on. And was that sense of, there's this kid bubbling under like it? Wayne was not ready. As in, as much as you say, oh, he's ready to play when he's 15, 16. You could see that he was going to be ready. Physically, Wayne could have played in the Premier League then. But actually, he still needed to develop his understanding of the game and all the things. But he was individually with the ball. You know, his power he had, the strength he had, the speed. He had all the things which were the making of a really good player then. He used to come out on the training pitch every day. And, you know, we'd have everything set up in the training pitch as we do. And... He'd come out and he'd kick the balls everywhere. He'd be trying to hit the crossbar from the halfway line, and he'd be—he was a, a boy who wanted the ball. Mm. And I remember thinking, there'll not be many street footballers left, but Wayne was generally a street. That's a great expression. That's a great. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you're talking about your bird camps, your Edgar Davidses, yeah. guys who learned to control the ball so they didn't skin their knees on, on the mm. cobbles and played yeah. street football. Yeah. Sort of kill or be killed. I could imagine Wayne hitting the ball off the curb and trying to, to yeah. see if it came up to him and <laughs> One controlling two's. it and you know his pals and and you know and I think you learn in those days. You know you you think nowadays that the players going down. You'd have get tossed over in the concrete. You nearly didn't feel it those days, even though it was the concrete. You know, and Wayne was a bit like that because winning was the big deal. Get the ball by it was the big yeah. deal. You know, and you didn't think they'd know it. Would you have thought then, when you saw him coming through in your youth ranks, that he was a guy who studied football, or that it was all kind of like a natural volcano of talent? Well, he was. A, he was a massive Everton fan. Wayne went to football all his life, so. Would he have been as someone as I said? I said probably yes. Well, your, your answer's right then in that case. Now yeah. you've, you've trumped me because I was chit chatting away to him once and I asked him about had he learned from anywhere and he went that as a kid, probably in the era that you were about to promote him, he studied Yari Lippmann's movement mm-hmm. every possible chance he could watch Ajax playing and that he tried to mimic it in his own development. Mm-hmm. And that really impressed me because yeah. I think a lot of players who can play naturally don't then go on and try to think about what the yeah. th- same as you've done what are other people doing where mm-hmm. am I deficient mm-hmm. Wayne yeah. Rooney because we're going at a clip now Duncan Ferguson we've had Duncan and you have had ups and downs but if I'm right 
you're partially responsible for the fact that he's now back at the club mm-hmm. coaching quite well regarded as we speak mm-hmm. we're a couple of days away from him getting a testimonial testimonial I think. yeah he plays in, in a week's time or so in a testimonial against so, Villarreal so there were, there were good times he scored goals for you I think mm-hmm. they had his goal being allowed against Villarreal in the Champions League you'd have made your Champions League debut as a coach bit bumpy in the goodbyes tell me a little bit about the Duncan Ferguson experience Duncan was very good Duncan was a really good player technically very good very good feet not given as much credit his finishing was mm-hmm. fantastic mm-hmm. the way he could connect with the ball you know the power he generated you know with his left foot he had incredible strength and power everybody knows about his aerial ability but he was a really good footballer you know, getting the ball into him hard to get it off him you know, if he got a chance on his left foot, he had really good finishing abilities and he had lovely craft as well with his left foot when needed. Yeah, we had our ups and downs with Duncan. The, the biggest thing for me was, I think in football, it comes around, things come back, you get to play against old teams, <laughs> you get to come up against old players, you meet old people who you've had in the past and, you know, Duncan went away for about five years, came back, said he wanted to come back in and be around it. I think in those five years he'd maybe learned that you'd been writing some of the things you'd said to him. And yeah, well, I think that Duncan worked with some managers who had great man. Duncan had Jim McLean, he worked under Walter Smith, you know, he, he worked under Bobby Robson. So Duncan, you know, worked under some fantastic managers. But I would say that the biggest thing is, you know, sometimes Duncan came back and said, look, I made a few mistakes, I got it wrong. And, uh, but overall, Duncan and his family you know, came back. I thought Duncan had too much to offer. Because if he could teach some of the young players to play the way he could, oh, you know, God. control, you know. Yeah. And also, I'm going to say it, you know, the way he could bully centre-halves. Now, I think of the goal he scored against Manchester United to win 1-0, which got us in the Champions League at Everton. I know, you know speaking to Manchester United, the players and, and people over there, they used to hate playing against Duncan <laughs> Ferguson. You know, they used to think, oh, no, not Duncan. I bet there's loads of centre-halves round that year. I thought, oh, I'm not playing against Duncan. Because you knew you were in for a physical day, but you're also in for giving him room or space. He could hurt you technically we, as well. We both know that fans pay to watch that kind of battle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not all about Iniesta and Xavi and no, Messi. That's right. Good though they are to watch. And I was once uh, lunching with George Graham and Ian McGann and Steve Cutner at Lions, and he told me about a phone call he took from Sir Alex. Sir Alex was saying, George, I've got the job for you. It's a Scotland job. George said, Alec, um, the Scotland job, uh, would you take it? I said, no, no they will not lie. Thanks very much indeed. I'm certain you wouldn't regret taking the phone call from Alec and accepting the job, but maybe you'd look at the club and the, the aftermath of a, of a behemoth like Alex Ferguson leaving, the timing of some of the players' states of mind, the, the movement of David Gill. You went into a club in an enormous state of flux, and you weren't given the time that you merited, given what we've talked about Everton and mm-hmm. building a club and building an ethos. Have I got it right that it, you know you were the right man at the wrong moment in that club's history? Well, it was a, it's a great, great job, Manchester United. Whoever gets the opportunity to manage it should take it because of what the club is and what it stands for. It's a fantastic football club. But it was also a football club which uh, you would have looked at and thought, in, in history gone by tended to choose a British manager. Maybe not always take someone who was you know, the, the one at the top. They looked around for, mm-hmm. for what they thought was right for their club. Mm-hmm. I thought when I went to the job, I do. I, I believed at the time I was, I was the right person for the job. It was great that 
you know, Sir Alex had thought that I was the right credentials and the right person to go there. Ultimately, you go into the job and, you know, you have to win games if you're a football manager. That's the first thing I'd say. And, and there's mitigating circumstances, but you have to win enough games. You, you can't know, win them on your own. No, you can't win them on your own and it takes time. And, and we discussed a bit earlier about how people, you know, can give you that opportunity to get it correct. And to, let's be fair, Manchester United had given Sir Alex a good yeah. period to correct it. So, you know, speaking of in the history, you, you, you looked at Manchester United as a club who would have given their managers opportunities to build a, a team. But, as I said, I didn't win enough games in the first year. And because of that, whether I was manager of Preston, Everton, Manchester United, you still need to win the games. People lost their nerve around you. I think that the Champions League was your enemy because in the years when Sir Alex was given time and patience, okay, they were important men, but Bobby Charlton was a huge ally to mm. him and important to him and uh, you know, Matt too, but the Champions League didn't exist for a good chunk mm. of the moments when Alex was being given patience and the Champions League has become a beast whereby the fans expect you to be there, the sponsors want you to be there, there's huge revenue there. Now, there's this enormous fear factor mm-hmm. that if you're not top four all the time, then yeah. irrespective of whether the manager deserved time or... Geez, these players aren't quite what they were, which is my opinion, and I'm saying it, it's up to you, you. But you inherited a group of players that wasn't necessarily of the ilk mm-hmm. that they'd been under Sir Alex or becoming now with the expenditure of hundreds mm-hmm. of millions of pounds. That's why I said that I think you went to you know, the right guy at the right club at the wrong time. A time when around you, people didn't have the quality necessarily, mm-hmm. didn't have the nerve, weren't loyal. You used the word poison. You have to mm-hmm. put up with a lot of poison in, in your career at certain stages. And for example, there was a lot of stuff swirling around about you and Robin Van Persie. And I noticed the other day Robin Van Persie making a point of saying on leaving Manchester United, I like David Moyes, I enjoyed working for him. And I'm going to stay in touch. And he specifically said, no, that was a good experience. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the case that if the right people had been around you, you know, you'd still have been in charge and, and that winning games would have yeah. come. There was a lot of things spoken and written about which were inaccurate and not correct. I couldn't do anything about that, you know, but I can only say I know the facts and things which I think people needed to find a story to the reasons why maybe <laughs> things didn't quite work. I keep it simple because I've chosen that it's better to keep things quite private about it. I respect Manchester United as a football club. It's a really good football club. The players were terrific. The Manchester United players were terrific, all of them. Good. They worked well. They gave it all. Of course, you know, people knew that Manchester United needed to develop, needed to look in time to build a new team. You know, I think everybody understood that. You know, they're doing that now. And, you know, I think hopefully if I'd been given that opportunity, I'd have done a similar job. Well, I remember a phone call... When Ander Herrera's people had asked me to make sure you knew very close to the end of the, mm-hmm. the deadline that you'd just taken over the job, this kid wants to come to your club. Mm-hmm. And you said something that I think has helped me understand why it is that you've got an extremely good track record of spotting players. And when we chatted, you said, I know the player. 18 months ago, I was intensely following the player and would have been something I could have said, yes, we'll do that deal. Now what I'd like 
is just to see his over his, his growing pain, his operation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take nine, 12 months to study him. You set that in motion. They've now got a very, very good player. Ander did want to come. Do you think you've got a knack at sending players because of an eye, because of hard work? Mm-hmm. What is it that you've got that generally allows you to bring players to a club like Everton for Fellaini, double mm-hmm. Everton's money? Stones, I think, was probably the last purchase Stones, you made. Was, Stones was the last signing before we left. He's yeah. going to go for a couple of bob more than you sign him? If they sell him, yeah. yeah. Something like 27 yeah. million yeah. more than you. Now, I'm not bumming you up. These are facts. Yeah. And, and some managers and coaches mm-hmm. and scouts don't have that ability. Tell me a little bit about the process and why you're good at it. We worked really hard on bringing players in. I think that if you don't have a good, a good recruitment, you know, you'll fail as a manager. So your recruitment is, the, is critical. So you need to have people who are good at their job. They need to work very hard. Some you hope might have an eye for a player. I built up a staff who had different types. I knew and I would bounce them off and we would be in the room arguing all the time about players. Mm-hmm. Somebody would be saying, ah, he's good enough and I'm saying no and somebody else would say, no, he's not. And I wanted to find, I wanted to get to the right answer as often as I could. Quite often, you know, I didn't take players and quite often I signed the wrong ones so not all the players we signed were good. But... I do know that we signed a lot of really good players. You know, we took a lot of younger boys from the lower leagues in England because we wanted to give them a career. We wanted to try and develop them ourselves. Like we said, is we didn't have the money to go and buy somebody more than £5 million at that time. So we were having to look round to see what we thought could be good. So a lot of the players we bought were round that price. Sometimes Bill could find a little bit more cash now and again and we could do something. But overall... I had really good people, recruitment people. I think all clubs now have got that. Not all signings are correct, as we can see. I think at times you have to go yourself. That's the phrase I was angling for, because you said to me about Ander, eyes on, I have to have my own eyes on if I'm going to spend Mm -hmm. 30 million quid on a player. Yeah. So that's the extra element, that you take all the information from your team and then you put yourself in the mix. When you lose your job, it's the coach who loses their job. It mm-hmm. tends not to be the chief scout, or it tends not to be head of recruitment or yeah. whatever. And rightly so, the coach is the guy who works the team, practices with the team every day. But also, if that's the case, then you know you have to be the one who gets a chance to say, I want him or not. And then what you do is you get a player in, you, you, you take responsibility. Yes, I, I brought him in, he's my player, I now need to work him. So I, I do know that over the years we had to work really hard. And that's why, hey, we missed a lot of players. But I'll tell you what, if people knew the players I've spoken to and had either talking to them in, in hotels or meeting them at the house, or over the years I've had loads of good players. Some we've not taken because we don't think they were right for the club. Some we couldn't get because maybe the money or a bigger club had come. But I always think that the key to it is any good players out there you've got to be close to being around or in for. I think at Everton we were very close to that most of the time. Maybe we could close by talking about what was a turning point in your year, I think, because you arrived here when the club was in a bit of a desperate situation. It was kind of grim weather-wise and you had a lot of work on your hands and then suddenly you popped up one of those results against Football Club Barcelona, who who did quite well Mm -hmm. this season. Won the treble, set records, made the world fall back in love with their brand of football. Rather than talking about the win itself, which hopefully this season you'll be able to experience again and against Madrid, tell me something about, as a football lover, being up close with Barcelona over the two games, what's it like? Is it an experience that you haven't had in any other competitions? At Manchester United, we got to the quarter-final of the Champions League, and it was great. 
you know, we got to Bayern Munich and it was probably Bayern Munich were a really good team and have been under Pep, very good. We had got to a level which actually last year no other English club got to. And the reason why I talk about the Champions League is because Barcelona have probably in the last 10 years near enough dominated. If it's not been them, it's Real Madrid. Mm-hmm. Now, Barcelona's style is, everybody knows, we talked about Johan Cruyff and mm-hmm. probably the start of, of that period. Their style is completely different from MDLs. You know, even, I think Bayern have got a little bit closer to it or a little bit towards it in a way with Pep. It's nearly a complete one-off. And actually, the majority of coaches and far better coaches than me have not been able to get results against them because you can't get the ball off them. You find it very difficult to put any pressure on them. When you do, they play round you. You play deep. They've still got the ability to score goals with individual talent they've got. So it becomes really, really hard as a coach to find a style, a way of beating Barcelona. So I've got to say, getting a result, coming up close against them was a chance to see what is it they really do. And strange enough, in the first game, we scored after after a minute and then sort of somehow hung on for the rest of it. People forget that yeah. your goalkeeper, Geronimo, yeah. had one hell of a game. Yeah, he did. I mean, but if you're going to play Barcelona... <laughs> you're not going to have it any better yeah. you know yeah. ok and there'll always be a day when Barcelona lose games like any football team yeah. they'll never always win football games there'll be, a, there'll be a day somewhere but in the main the best players like Barcelona top clubs will win their games for me the big thing was getting close to Iniesta Iniesta never gave the ball away kept turning out of trouble any time we got him in trouble changed direction with the ball kept getting the ball back we could not get close to Iniesta and, you know, for all the things they talk about, Messi and, and Suarez and all the people, and on the night, you know, they didn't all start the game. It was Iniesta who was the one who I thought, my goodness, this guy's something else. It was like training. Nobody could get close enough to tackle him. You've done something extraordinary. You've touched on an embarrassing subject for me because when he was coming through, he was just a subject you and Billy were talking about earlier today in the canteen. He wasn't really trusted until he was about 22, which mm-hmm. in retrospect seems mm-hmm. demonically mad. You could see he was a good footballer uh, when I moved over there and it was the budding team under record, but he couldn't score. So my stupidity told me, there's a player who does everything and then doesn't have an end product. And I mm-hmm. stopped seeing the things he was doing well. And Xavi, I revered, and Xavi still remains to me the, mm-hmm. the, the greatest ever Spanish footballer. Mm-hmm. But the people in opposition to me, starting with you, mm-hmm. Gordon Strachan, mm-hmm. who almost word for word made the same points as you and yeah. said, people talk about Messi and Xavi. I want them to watch Iniesta. And also Xavi. If you say to Xavi, You're the, he's not even mm-hmm. the best Spaniard at this club, mm-hmm. it's Iniesta. You know, people who don't have your, your football training and your badges mm-hmm. and your experience, what is it we miss about Iniesta? I mean, I'm aware he's top, but to, mm-hmm. to put him in the pantheon you've just done... It's nearly difficult to explain. That's a bit about explaining Barcelona. Mm. You know, look at all the coaches. I remember the great battles with uh, Pep and Josie. Yeah. You know, probably about five years ago when they were playing against each other and two great teams and they ended up drawing each other, I think, just about in every competition yeah. and whatnot. Josie trying to find a way of beating the Barcelona style. So going back to Iniesta, if you press them, someone else will take his space. 
he'd keep the ball off you in a telephone box sort yeah. of thing you know he was he was so good his close control his technical ability how to shield the ball away from you when you when you come into him you know he'd get his body between you and the ball you know he would unbalance you at times you know so that he could go past you when you come in fast he'd play past you one touch round the corner every time he got the ball I mean I don't know what his past success rate in the night was but to me I was thinking he's never given the ball away and he's there's lots of players who don't give the ball away and keep it but what do they do with it but he was always looking to play forward trying to play into people do you class that as a form of bravery I mean in Josie's case and I'll say this you don't have mm. to but well, for Chelsea and Real Madrid his idea was I'll ask my player I'll have a strategy I'll ask my players to play to the top but I'll also impose ourselves physically mm-hmm. we'll see if they fancy it yeah. see if I can go on the referee but I'm not talking about physical bravery and the, the idea that Iniesta might take a kick in for the taking on of risk wanting the ball all the time doing Definitely. things where if you're yeah. exposed and you have the ball ripped off you your defence will be exposed and it'll be a goal mm-hmm. I, I consider that a form of bravery in Iniesta's play definitely and that's where Barcelona will take that risk teams down again get a little bit of joy you might nick yeah, it off them now and again but Barcelona do take that risk I spoke to somebody, somebody in Spain when I came over and they said, hey, don't get carried away, you know, what Pep done and what Barcelona done, eh, as they called it, ticker-tacker, it's not all what's in Spain. And I've got to say, no. what I've seen since I've been in Spain is not that I see one football club who are fantastic at it. But I wouldn't say that I see that all round the rest of Spain. I see good football, good technical players, all comfortable receiving the ball, being able to handle the ball in, in most situations. But Barcelona's a one-off. Will that change maybe in the maybe in the time when maybe we've talked about Xavi, who's you know, an extraordinary player like Iniesta's. Maybe when Xavi and Iniesta go, you know, when when we're looking to maybe even maybe even Busquets goes, you know, and you're looking into the likes of Ratatic coming in, and maybe even when Messi's time, will Barcelona still be able to have the quality of the player to do what they're doing at the level they're doing? It'll be interesting to see in the next sort of period of Barcelona's football history. Because people who, like you do, like I do, who we talk about football, we've seen a lot of eras, we've talked about a lot of good teams. Everybody's out there to find a way of stopping Barcelona at the moment. What way could we stop them? As is, you know, not many's found a way of it at the moment. Well, you did. That was a big win. May you have more of that this season. Thanks for taking so much time. I've enjoyed it a lot. I hope people get the same buzz out of just talking about football and a life in football. We didn't talk about David Ginola wanting Saturdays off. <laughs> we didn't talk about Shackleton as a source of inspiration and I throw that in because that means sometime down the line I'm going to ask to do part two but for now David Moyes Real Sociedad manager you're off the hook thank you very much I've enjoyed it hope everybody enjoys listening to it Basic football pleasure thanks boss thank you <laughs>